If you're just joining us, uh, today we are concluding our sermon series uh, on bearing the wind load, how to persevere in trials. This last sermon that we're tackling uh, in a series on facing suffering, facing hardships and challenges in this life that we live in this world, is actually on heaven, looking forward. It's this picture of God's promise for the future. Our passage for this morning is going to be actually all the way at the back of the, your pew Bibles or your, your Bible apps. It's on Revelation 21, 1 to 4. But what I'd like to do this morning before we actually get into that passage is to show how the whole of Scripture, the whole of the biblical narrative, the Bible, has kind of been pointing us towards this moment, towards this promise, towards this hope that we have in the future, even as we live in this broken and hard world. I mean, this is the grand narrative, the biblical narrative, the storyline of God and his people. And one of the ways I want to show how to do that or how that's kind of been setting it up is by reading to you this story that I sometimes read with my son every night before bed. It's called The Biggest Story, ABC, by Kevin DeYoung. This story probably just 26 sentences. What it's, what's cool about it is that you know, even in these 26 sentences, it brings out a lot of the themes that we're going to find in our passage today, particularly that in heaven, the curse is reversed. So I don't know if you'll be able to see some of these pictures. You're just going to have to use your imagination, but you can kind of listen along and take a moment um, as I read. So let's begin. The biggest story, ABC. I'm not a children's pastor, so I can't be able to do it as well as maybe Pastor Bowman or or Tony, so you're going to have to show me some grace. A, in the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. B, everything was beautiful in God's good world. C, then Adam and Eve sinned, and everything was put under a curse. D, but God promised to send a deliverer to save his people. E, one time God raised up Moses to save his people from Egypt. F, God sent flies. G, he sent gnats. H, he sent hail so that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go. But after they were free, God's people still worshipped idols. J. God gave them judges, but the Israelites didn't listen. K. God gave them kings, but they kept on rebelling. L. God gave them the law, but they disobeyed. M. They needed a Messiah. To make things right. N, but God's people were naughty almost all the time. There's only so many words you can choose from. (laughs) O, the other nations overpowered the Israelites and made them captives. P, even God's prophets were ignored. Q, 
Hugh. Until finally, God seemed to be quiet for hundreds of years. R, but God hadn't left. He was just getting things ready. S, ready for his own son to come and save his people from their sins. T, God sent Jesus Christ to die upon a tree. U, and three days later, God raised him up from the dead. V, so we can have victory over sin and the devil. W, Jesus wins. <laughs> X, he is our example. Why? But more importantly, he is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. And Z, one day we will live forever in Zion, the new world God is preparing for those who love him. I don't know what you guys are clapping for, but thank you. Paul, Paul hits at a lot of the same themes in this children's book as he does in Romans 8, where he's talking about the sin and the suffering and the brokenness that we've kind of been hitting at over the past few weeks. This sin and suffering that has infected God's creation, the world that has placed it under a curse, right? The letter C. So I'm going to read for you Romans 8, 18 to 23. This is from the uh, New Living Translation, because I like how he, he smooths it out. So listen. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, which we hit on last week, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. And so we get to our passage for this morning, having read Romans, now we're in Revelation 21, 1 to 4. And it says there, John is writing, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That picture of future glory. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, men and women, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's a short passage this morning, but 
this passage is broken down into two sections for us. First, John has this kind of vision. And these first two verses lays out exactly what does he see? Specifically, that God is making all things new. This is the promise. And second, after noting what he sees, we read about the implications of that. What does that actually mean? Why is that good? Namely, here we see that the curse is reversed. The curse is reversed. So let's go back and start with the first point, verses 1 and 2, that God is making all things new. Specifically, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. Do you, do you kind of notice, if maybe you're following along with the passage, that there's this contrast between each pairing of heaven and earth and how it's described? There's the, the new heaven and a new earth, and then there's the first heaven and the first earth. New and first. It's two different words that seem to be getting at different ideas, right? He doesn't say there's the first heaven and the first earth, and then there's the second heaven and second earth. First, when we think of this word, it kind of gives us this sense of temporal newness, a newness of time. And so back in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before that there was nothing. But now in Revelation there is a new heaven and a new earth, not a second one. New, different from first, is getting at a qualitative newness, not a temporal one, a newness of quality, not just of time. So I'll give you an example. When I say that we, got, we get a new phone or a new computer, we don't usually say, I got my fifth phone or my tenth computer, right? We say, oh, I got a new computer. And part of what that means is that there's a quality. We've upgraded, Right? We have a faster processor, we have a better screen, we have 4K and, and whatnot, a better camera. What that is getting at here is that this heaven and earth that John sees is something that is renewed. It's transformed. It's better than what came before. And one of the things that kind of sets it apart is also the relationship between heaven and earth. Before, you, you kind of had this dichotomy, right, where God dwells in heaven and the people live on earth. But we're going to see that that's not what it's going to be like in the future. So John gives a reason as he continues on in this passage. The, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then there's this strange comment that the sea was no more. He's not talking about the sea geographically, as if there's no water, there's no bodies of water uh, in, in the kingdom of heaven, but he's talking about it metaphorically. The sea back then was understood to be a symbol of evil. So think about what is being said here for us. You know, that one of the biggest differences between the he first heaven and the first earth where we live now in the present day, and the difference between the new heaven and the new earth, which is in the future, is the presence of evil. Evil that comes in the form of suffering. Evil that comes in the form of atrocious acts committed against one another. Evil that comes in the form of brokenness in this world that plagues individuals and institutions. 
Now, there's a second thing that, that John sees as well in his vision that he's been uh, given by God. Verse 2, that there is a new people. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here's this vision of this new Jerusalem. It's probably both the people of God, the saints, who inhabit it, and also their dwelling place. And they are described as a bride for God. They are a people morally and spiritually made anew because of Jesus' shed blood on the cross. And they are here with God. This relationship, this covenant is being emphasized here. God is making all things new. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new people. So now, what what does that mean? Why is that so good? Verses 3 to 4. The curse is reversed. There's two implications of what we mean when, when I say the curse is reversed. First, God will dwell with his people. When we go back to Genesis 3, 24, the relationship between God and people was ruptured. This is the letter C, that there was a curse that came in, that sin entered into the world through one man, and death came through sin. There was a rift. God continued to be a holy and perfect God, and the people now become rebellious and sinful, and there is that wall that separates us from having true intimacy and a true relationship with God. And in Genesis 3, 24, God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so that's at the very beginning of the story of Scripture. We fast forward all the way to the end in Revelation 21. What do we see? A voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This, this is covenant language. I will be your God. You will be my people. And what we see here in Revelation is the fullest brightest picture of God reconciling this relationship with his people. We saw glimpses of it before all the way as we made our way through scripture of God dwelling with his people. But there was always something separating them completely because of, because of sin. Right? There was the Garden of Eden, but ultimately that didn't last. There was the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, but there was always the veil or the holy of holies that kept people from God. There was Mount Sinai, and the people trembled and shuddered, saying, let us not approach God because of his holiness and our sinfulness. There was always a barrier that kept, them from true, kept us from true fellowship. And then Jesus came. In John 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, He came to die on a tree, the letter T, to reverse the curse. Now the picture that we get is of God dwelling 
living with his people in his kingdom. And the place in which he dwells with his people is this heaven and earth that is united into this larger reality. So let me say, say that again, that heaven, heaven is not this place up in the clouds where we float as disembodied spirits or as angels with a halo and wings. You know, that, that picture of heaven comes from the Simpsons. It comes from anime. It comes from Plato. The picture of heaven that we get in the Bible is a grounded reality. God is making all things new. He has united heaven and earth in his kingdom so that we might dwell with him. It is literally heaven on earth. And as the biggest story ABC ended, one day we will live in his kingdom, in Zion, he calls it. This new world that God is preparing for those who love him. The second implication of this curse being reversed is this. And this is the one that really hits home for for our sermon series as we wrap up. That there's hope that, that one day God will remove all sorrow and suffering. This last verse is the first that gives us the perspective to know what's at stake. That we are bearing our wind load We are facing hardships. We are suffering. We are enduring. We are facing sickness and pain and challenges. And we ask, we pray, will it end? God's answer is a resounding yes. And I think that is important for us to, to know as we go about our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And I heard one pastor say that God will, will always answer yes to those prayers of, you know, will he bring about healing to my sickness, to my ailment? Will he bring about restoration to my broken body, to this broken world? The answer is always yes, because it's a question not of if, but of when. And Revelation 21, 1-4 gives us that answer. That if he doesn't bring about restoration and healing and miracles today, which he can do and he does do, he will ultimately do it in his kingdom when Jesus Christ returns. And that is good news and hope for us today. That it will not end in darkness as we descend to death, but it will be in the kingdom of heaven where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This phrase, pass away, is mentioned twice. It actually kind of bookends our our passage, verse 1 and verse 4. This is the reason, part of it at least, that the former things have passed away. That the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea, this evil it represents, is no more. Rather, God is making all things things new. God has reversed the curse. And so we know that our suffering, whether it be the persecution that we face, or maybe not even so much that, but just the hardships that we face living life as Christians, or just living life in this world, that all of it is not hopeless. 
But like we saw last week in Romans 3, or Romans 5, 3 to 5, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And God's love has been demonstrated that while we were still sinners, God made the first move. And he sent his son to die on the cross for us. Revelation, this letter, is is written to a group of early Christians who are enduring suffering and persecution beyond anything many of us have experienced or even can imagine today. But all this, whether it is suffering at the hands of a tyrannical empire or suffering as a result of the brokenness in this world, it's because of the curse of sin. But Revelation 21 gives us this glorious picture of what's to come. It helps us to think long, to see long, to bear our windload, knowing the future hope, the future glory that we have in God because of Jesus and his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your goodness, for the, your faithfulness, the promise that you have given to us. Lord, we know that living in this world is not easy at times, that things happen, that life happens, and we encounter surprises, surprises that are not always good. But we also know that you have overcome this world, and that there is hope in you. And so we rejoice in you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.